truth in a song. <clears throat> I believe that's what God intended music uh, to be. When he created the devil, um, if you do a study, a small study actually, on Lucifer, Lucifer was created within him, um, within his body it seems, are musical instruments. So is it any wonder that the world has such a deep perversion of music um, because they are led by him as, as his pride uh, was the instrument thrusting him from heaven. But we have, uh, we have the author, the creator of music within us. And so we're going to do it right. And we're going to sing about him. And uh, if you don't have a conviction about that already, I, I hope you'll pray about that. Mark chapter 6. We're here in Mark chapter 6 this morning. Thank you for the kind attention already that you're giving to God's word. And on one hand, of course, we would be foolish not to do that. But on the other hand, we're human and we do foolish things. So I'm thanking you this morning. Because I already know that you have an intention in your heart that not just to hear some Bible preaching this morning, because I think even uh, the Bible is intellectually stimulating in itself. It's such a deep book written by the mind of God. But how much more it can do in the lives of those who seek to apply the Word of God. Those who have the Holy Spirit already living inside. Those who have the Holy Spirit already pursuing you. And you came today with a question mark in your life and in your heart, hoping for an answer. And uh, I will tell you that what we read this morning may not give you the exact answer you're looking for, but the answer you're looking for is in this book. God gave us everything we need to know in Him. And we're in Mark chapter 6, continuing our study through the Gospels this morning, chronologically. And it was funny, I was listening to a preacher this weekend, and I just recently found out that, uh, that he as well is doing a, a chronological study through the Gospels. And I was a little bit embarrassed because he started before we did. <laughs> and you know who it was? It was Pastor Sam's. It was just here on Sunday night. <laughs> he was just here. I was like, I hope he doesn't think I copied him. I, I really didn't know. I, I really didn't. And uh, but he's been doing the same thing. It's, it's funny. Now, he's further, which is good for me. So I, I get to listen to some preaching before I preach to you. But I promise you it's not a quote, okay? This is not plagiarism. <laughs> we're, we're in Mark chapter 6 this morning. And I've entitled, as I was studying this passage, entitled this, You Can't Outrun a Guilty Conscience. This is an intriguing story this morning. Fascinating, but not in a good way. But it just, uh, it makes you want to read more. At least it did me. In Mark chapter 6, we'll be starting in verse number 12 in in just a minute. And you've probably heard the passage before, but as we kind of introduce this, this topic, you know, I personally believe, and this may sound weird, This is not the only weird thing you're going to hear this morning, so just buckle in. I believe guilt is a gift. I do. I believe guilt is a gift. Now, it is a negative thing, absolutely. Uh, But guilt is a warning sign. Guilt is a warning sign that something is not right on the inside. Now, hold on with that. Something being not right on the inside comes in all sorts of different venues, Uh, Guilt is a feeling that comes when our conscience is not clear, quite honestly. As I studied guilt in the Bible, this is interesting, uh, it is only in the Bible listed as a fact, not a feeling. That's whether someone is guilty uh, um, of of whatever it was, whatever somebody said they did or did not do, they were guilty of that, which is a fact, one way or the other. Either you are guilty or you're not. It was never the feeling of guilt. I could not find that anywhere in the Bible. 
Now, it's maybe talked about in different ways, and we'll see that this morning, but the word guilt, if you do a word study, you just don't find it. It's either you're guilty or you're not. It's based on the facts. It's never the feeling. So that was a good reminder for me, that when I am talking about guilt, when when I am feeling guilty, my guilt needs to be checked with the facts. And what better book of facts to check my guilt with than right here? The truth. Um, I didn't never have to worry about these facts being tainted or being off in any way, shape, or form, being influenced by opinion or politics or any of that type stuff, sinful nature. I can always look at these facts and know whether my guilt is warranted or not. You know, guilt is a result of our conscience. It's rooted in our conscience. And our consciences can be educated, even numbed. The Bible talks about a searing of the conscience. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So we must be sure that our guilty feelings line up with truth, one way or the other. I believe somebody's conscience can be educated to feel guilty even when they're not actually guilty. I believe a person with a seared conscience, I believe the Bible uh, substantiates this, a seared conscience, they can numb themselves from those guilty feelings when they should be feeling guilt and they're not. The Bible talks about that. But a healthy conscience is a gift. And when you run in your life on a healthy conscience, a pure conscience, that guilt that comes from that is a gift. It's God's warning sign to you. Something is not right. Our dog, Sasha, she has been educated by us. She's the only, we're the only people she's ever known. Um, I don't know, what was she, like four weeks old when she came to us? Or really young. So if she knew anybody else, she doesn't remember them. Okay. So she only knows us, and we have educated her in what is right and wrong. If you could say an animal has a conscience, I don't know about that. If you could say that, we have educated her conscience, okay? So she will automatically, if she thinks she did something that was wrong, her ears go down, her head drops, tail goes between the legs. I mean, she cannot fake it for the life of her. I mean, just as obvious, Sasha did something wrong. (laughs) So, you know, she's so obvious about it. Guilty conscience? I don't know. I don't know, but it has striking similarities, doesn't it? We're, we're in Mark chapter 6, verse number 12. Mark chapter 6, and as we go through verse 12 to 29, I want you to notice kind of the layout here. It's an interesting layout. The first th- up to verse 16, so four verses, is really what is happening right now. And it's, it's a little bit odd. It's what is happening right now. And then, verses 17 through 29 is a flashback of why what is happening right now is happening. So just keep that in mind as we're reading. The first uh, to verse 16 is, is what is happening right now. And then from verse 17 to 29, the story flashes back to show us, God shows us where this came from. Okay? So in Mark six, uh, chapter 6, verse 12. And they went out, that's the disciples, and preached that men should repent And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. And King Herod heard of him, for his name was spread abroad. And he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead. Therefore, mighty works to show forth themselves in him. Others said that it is Elias. And others said that it is a prophet or as one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, it is John, whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. This is the flashback. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in a prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. 
Therefore, Herodias had a quarrel against him, John, and would have killed him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and a holy, and observed him. And when he had heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. And when a convenient day was come that Herod, on his birthday, made a supper to his lords, high captains, chief estates of Galilee, and when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I'll give it to thee. And he sware unto her, Whatsoever thou shalt ask me, I will give it thee unto the half of my kingdom. And she went forth and said unto her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And the king was exceeding sorry. Yet for his oath's sake and for their sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner, commanded his head to be brought. And he went, beheaded John in prison, and brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. What a a horrific story. True story. Let's, Let's dive into it verse by verse, and let's ask the Lord to help us, if you would. Join me in prayer. Father, we know that you were not right here when this was happening. Lord, in physical form, you were in another part of the land. But you were alive, and omniscient God, omnipresent God, the God by which all things consist, was very aware and sovereign over this entire narrative that we're going to read this morning. Lord, would you bring this to life in our eyes? Would you open our eyes to what you would have us to see? Not just to what was happening here 2,000 years ago, but what is happening right here and right now in Thomasville, Georgia, in the hearts and minds of the people in this building and who are listening online. Lord, your word is powerful. Truth is powerful. We are asking for a divine movement of your truth that it would convict and permeate the hearts of your creation. Lord, that today sinners would come to you to be saved. Lord, your children would be able to have an accurate view of their guilt. Lord, as we measure it up with your word, the facts, the truth. Lord, we love you today. Thank you for speaking to us in advance, and we look forward to what you'll do in our hearts, Lord. And we say as a church, who who am I? Lord, we don't deserve for you to meet with us today, but we're asking you to. Please, open our eyes. In your name I ask, amen. So, as we continue in Mark chapter 6... Just, just a horrific story, and, and really, unless you sit and meditate on this for the hours that I was privileged to do so, um, I don't know that you're going to catch it all. So one of the things we are going to be doing in, in future days, and it should be happening about mid-October, is we are going to start what we talk about on Sunday morning, in the Sunday morning message, we will take a parallel, or we'll go deeper, or we'll go further with it on Wednesday night in your fellowship groups so that we can really dive into these rich passages in God's Word and take something home that we can remember, talk about something during the week, 
and apply those things to our lives. And in an attempt to do that, we'll, we'll see some gear shifting here in the next few weeks, and I'm looking forward to that. And uh, even if you're not, I think you will after it happens. So we're going to go with it and, and see how the Lord leads. But here we are in the story, the context, as we always want to make sure we look at. Anytime we study God's Word, God gives us this account, okay, by starting with the disciples. Remember, they're living out step number two in the discipleship process, right? Jesus picked them, and they responded, yes. Number two, now that he's taught them for a while, he's sending them out on a temporary internship, and they're going to come back and report. Matter of fact, next week we'll hear the report, okay? But this week, they're out. They're out and about. They're doing, remember, they were going to be facing opposition. They were, they were getting that, um, that talking to by the Lord, that, um, I keep wanting to say promotion, but that's not what it was, um, that pep rally, so to speak, by God. This is what you're going to expect. It's not going to be fun, but don't worry, you're representing me, and this life is real short. You have eternal life. You're going to be with me forever. So don't worry about that. This is a taste of what it's going to cost you to be my disciple. And, of course, we know all of the apostles, history tells us, uh, except for one, gave their lives for this cause, for his cause. And it is a privilege. So they're on step number two now on the internship. They're spreading the straightforward message. Remember, the kingdom of God is at hand. Everything that pointed to that, that's what they were to spread. God gave them the abilities uh, to do what he needed to do as verification for the message. These are one-time abilities. We don't, this is not anybody who claims that they're an apostle is going to go around healing people. Okay, This was a specific period of time. Then the account flashes back. Uh, you know, after, after these guys are out and, and, and word reaches to King Herod, he is shocked and surprised, and he makes a, kind of some weird um, assertions based on that. And then the, the text goes back and tells us why he made those assertions. And it is quite the story. It's a story of degradation. I mean, it's, it's how low can you go? Story of sin, fear, lust, drunkenness, incest, greed, pride. How far can these things take a man down a path, and in this case, a path that he would never return from? It's a story about what happens when we resist the truth and ultimately the one who was the truth. It's an intriguing story of how you can try to avoid the truth. You can can try to ignore what is right in front of you. You can try to reason it out. But the truth is so deeply connected with all of God's creation because we came from Him that we just can't get away from it. And we find this at the very beginning of the story. He cannot get away from this. Let me just tell you some key characters in, in the account, in case you didn't notice. We have John the Baptist. Not, not for much of it, but he's there. And his, his legacy lives on. His testimony lives on. We have Herod Antipas. We have Herodias. And Herod and Herodias. That's like, I don't know. That's just funny to me. That's husband and wife. Uh, we have uh, Salome, who, as history tells us, was the damsel in the story. And then we finish the story with Jesus himself. So let's step right into this timeline. And and we are at the beginning. Mark chapter 6, verse 12. Herod is about to hear some shocking news. Shocking news. Verse number 12, it says, And they went out, Mark 6, 12, And they went out, they the disciples, and preached that men should repent. And they the disciples cast out many devils, and anointed with oil many that were sick, 
and healed them. They are doing exactly what God told them to do. Jesus, in the flesh. Go out. Preach this message I've given you. Take these abilities, these special abilities I'm giving you so that people will know this message is for real. Heal people. Throw out demons. Uh, Go out and do miracles. Miracles. And we see point number one. God's truth does the work. We just obey. And quite frankly, the disciples were just simply obeying what Jesus told them to do. And I find that as a comfort. God gives the abilities. God even gives the commands. All I need to do is obey. I don't have to overthink this thing. I don't have to be... um, uh, I can't remember who I was... I was talking to somebody recently. (laughs) I don't know who it was, so I'm not going to say, but... Of their idea of looking at preachers and celebrity preachers and thinking that when they got saved, like, this was it. These were the people, and they didn't know any better. And um, he was referring to Benny Hinn. <laughs> he just thought when he first got saved, he thought, wow, he, I mean, he's it. <laughs> I mean, he's like, ooh, you know, this is great. And it didn't take him long to figure that out. It wasn't so, but I'm so thankful that, that God, just as his child, when I become saved, when I obeyed for the first time, that call to be saved, that God saves me, puts his spirit within me, and dwells me, the Bible says, and sends me out. He sends me out. All I have to do is obey. There's no really qualifications other than just being a child of God. And God, even from time to time, uses people that weren't his children because he has bigger purposes than just one person. That's for sure. But they, here in this scripture, and they went out. These are the disciples that Jesus sent out two by two. We know that. Matthew chapter 7 on the slide behind me. He, he gives us a little different angle. He says, as you go, this is Jesus, parallel passage, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this was the simple message. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. But I'm sure the disciples, as they are traveling and just obeying what God told them to do, God in the flesh, God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus, they never imagined that their obedience on this little internship would reach hundreds of miles to the south to a fortress. And in that fortress would be a man who was considered royalty. At least he considered himself royalty. He was an authority. He was put over people. And what they were doing, the message they were proclaiming, would reach all the way down there and would create a quite astonishing reaction in this man. An internal struggle that that resulted um, in really a guilty conscience, honestly. And I think probably more than just resulting, it probably just pointed to the conscience that was already there. We don't know that for sure, but it definitely pointed to his guilty conscience. Verse number 14, we see it. Continue in Mark chapter 6. We'll be in Mark chapter 6, except for what I put on the screen uh, until the very end. It says in verse 14, And King Herod heard of him, Jesus, for his name was spread abroad. King Herod heard. King Herod hears the news. Here's this man, Jesus. And it wasn't even Jesus. It was his men telling the name of Jesus. Now, Jesus, I'm sure, was out there as well. But they had gone out to spread the message. Word gets back. And here we are in our timeline. Herod is hearing some shocking news. Some shocking news. He says in verse 12, I'm sorry, uh, in verse 14, okay? And uh, go ahead and put that next slide up there, Gray. As Herod sits in his fortress, now of course his fortress is no longer there 2,000 years ago, but it's sitting right on top of that mountain. And behind him is the Dead Sea, 
and the other coast going into Israel. To the, to the right there is Jerusalem. You can't see it on there. It's so far. But this was, this was the view. I mean, this man, talk about an incredible view. He's got an incredible view. His fortress is right there on the top of that mountain. And he's hearing what Jesus was doing way past Jerusalem. This is just, a, to me, a clear indication of point number two, that we cannot run from guilt. Can't run from guilt. In verse number 14... It, uh, it said, And King Herod heard of him, for his name was spread abroad, and he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead. And therefore, mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said that it is Elias, and others said that it's a prophet or as one of the prophets. Can't run from your guilt. Clear across the land of Israel, it points to Herod. We looked right there. In verse uh, 14, it says, And King Herod heard. Now, King Herod, let's give me a little background. King was a loose term for Herod, okay? The other, actually, only one of the Gospels labels him as a king, but as you study history, it seems to have been almost a self-imposed title. He did have authority. His name was Herod Antipas. He was one of four Herods at the time. They were known as Tetrarchs, and they had different regions. If you look at a Bible map, you can see that on there. He was given by Rome, as well as his other three brothers, okay, were given the authority to rule over certain regions. He was given Galilee and the southern region down by the Dead Sea. Now, do not confuse this Herod with Herod the Great, the one who sought to kill Jesus. Herod the Great was actually a king, and he uh, was this man's father. Herod the Great had ten wives. Six of them, we don't know their children, but history tells us the other four had uh, three of these tetrarchs we're talking about. Okay, so Herod the Great, tempted murder of, of the infant Jesus. This was Herod Antipas' father. And uh, he, was, he was given this title uh, of king, if you would, of authority, uh, Tetrarch. But he was definitely the ruler of that region. Okay, it says, and he said, in verse 14, and he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead. Now, this is an odd conclusion. He hears of this message that the disciples, the apostles, are spreading amongst, around surrounding areas of Galilee, etc., in Israel. And Jesus is in there as well, and they're performing miracles, and they're doing miraculous things, and, and preaching this message of the Messiah. And he hears about it, and, and what is his conclusion from there? This is John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Now, I mean, we read the Bible, so that probably kind of glosses right over, and we don't think any, we're used to reading miracles and stuff. But, I mean, this is, this is a lost man who didn't even know Jesus, but that was his assertion. I mean, where did he come up with that? Why would he think, out of all the things he could think, why would he think this was John the Baptist coming from the dead? Well, that's what the next part of the story. Um, I don't know if you or I would have that response, but as we look at the information, you know, maybe we might come up with a different story. It's interesting that there were other people advising him as well. So he was not just hearing general information. People were already forming their opinions on who this was, and they were coming back and telling him. Some said he was Elias. Now, Elias is, is uh, a transliteration, okay? It's, it's, the, it's, the, uh, it's either the Hebrew or the Greek word, helias, okay? So it sounds familiar, right? Transliteration of the Greek pronunciation for Elijah. Some of your versions already have Elijah written in there, okay? So either one is fine. In Malachi, uh, next slide please, Malachi 4, 5, and 6, this would not be an uncommon 
um, interpretation of who this was, right? Because they read the Old Testament prophets. He says, Malachi 4, 5, and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. This was just written 400 years ago. Matter of fact, interesting time, 400 years of silence had come after that. God had not spoken audibly like he was in the Old Testament times. God had not spoken. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And so they're looking back to this prophecy I can't say that I may not do the same thing. Some said also he was one of the prophets. Maybe they even thought that he was a, a um, fulfillment of the prophet who Moses wrote about in the Pentateuch. Very prominent section of Old Testament scripture. Next slide, please. Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee of thy brethren. Like unto me, Moses is writing, unto him ye shall hearken. Moses is prophesying here. First five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, very prominent portions of Hebrew Scripture. They're thinking, well, he's either Elias or, or he's one of these prophets. He's a great prophet. He's, maybe he's a continuation in the line of prophets. I mean, it's been 400 years since a prophet's been around. After hearing all of this, Herod still comes to the conclusion, no, this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. I mean, look, verse 16. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, it is John whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. There's our clue. Something had happened that's causing him to do this. <laughs> Something had happened that's causing Herod here to feel quite guilty, and he couldn't shake it. Seems like possibly an, an irrational response to maybe a casual onlooker of this passage, but guilty people do irrational things. We've all been there. They see accusers behind every corner. Right? They hear tones in your voice that they've never heard before. They make up assumptions without any facts to back them up, all because they feel guilty. And we've all done one or more of those things. In Proverbs 28, the Bible specifically talks of a lost man's guilt. He says, the wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Well, what made the difference? Guilt. I know what I'm doing is wrong, and I'm running. Somebody's going to get me. Someone's going to call me into account for what I'm doing, but not the righteous. Bold as a lion, nothing to be ashamed of. So where is this guilt coming from in Herod? Why did he hear about Jesus and come to some weird conclusion that this is John the Baptist brought back to life? Well, he gave us a clue in verse 16. Is John whom I beheaded? But let's continue on, and we see in point number three, our past sins have consequences. Our past sins have consequences. God created each of us with a conscience. Now, we know this, but the Bible speaks of it. This wasn't something we made up, okay? The word conscience just means knowledge within in English, and this is our inborn sense of right and wrong, and the Bible refers to it several times. It can be defiled. It can be seared or numbed, but the goal for every child of God is to have your conscience clear. Paul talks about that. When the conscience is not clear, guilt is a regular attender. When the conscience is not clear, guilt is a regular attender. A couple passages, just to draw a little segue here as we're moving on so we can all lay the same foundation, be on the same page. Romans chapter 2, verse 14. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, 
do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law or a law unto themselves. How does that work? Here's how it works. Which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, also bearing witness and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. And this is exactly why we'll find people in foreign lands, missionaries speak of this frequently, people in foreign lands who do not even have the Bible in their language. By the way, last time I heard it was over 300 languages do not even have the Bible in their language. But you'll go into one of those places, I've, I've heard, and they'll have some sort of moral code there. Some sort, and it's a little different in every place you go. But where do they come up with these? Well, hu- humanism would tell us, well, it's because we're all just naturally good people at our core. But that's not what God's law says. God says, I wrote that on your heart when I created you. Now, what we do with it afterwards becomes a matter of our free will, but God wrote it at the beginning, and it's on our conscience. It was also illustrated in the Gospels. We saw a very very familiar story. You'll recognize it. These men brought a woman caught in adultery to Jesus. Remember that? They were going to have her stoned, and they brought her to Jesus. They caught her in the very act. By the way, where was the man? We don't know. But uh, they thought she was worthy of death. And Jesus kneels down, and as he writes in the sand, he says, whoever here is innocent of any other sin, go ahead and throw that first rock. As he's writing in the sand, and we could guess all sorts of things of what he's writing there. But the very next verse in John 8, 9, on the slide behind me, says, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience... Oh, these weren't necessarily believers in Jesus. These are just God's creations. Being convicted by their own conscience. What was it? Jesus was speaking truth. Maybe he was writing truth. We don't know. And it connected with something that was already inside of them that God put there. And he's put it on all of us. It says, And they went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst or in the middle. Jesus speaks truth, and it pricks their conscience. So back to our narrative, Mark chapter 6. Herod here hears about Jesus and his disciples, and his guilt was like a giant arrow pointing at that sin, the sin that he wished he had never committed, but the sin he could not take back, and he could not avoid it any longer. Matter of fact, it's all he could see to that he was hearing about Jesus and the apostles and the message they were preaching, and he thought, it's John. He rose from the dead. John's ghost. So here we are at the timeline. Here is the flashback. What happened to bring all of this about? What happened to to give Herod such a load of guilt that he was living with? What, What brought him to the point of no return? Now, we're in Mark because Mark, just one of three Gospels that talks about this, gives us the most detail, okay? But we're in Mark 6, 17. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John, bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. For John had said unto Herod, it is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore, Herodias had a quarrel against him, would have killed him, but she could not. He flashes back to the time where Herod Antipas arrested John simply because his wife desired it. Well, why did she desire it? Well, Herodias, I don't have time to put a a picture of what happened. I was telling H.L. about this yesterday. 
that I'm looking at all this family timeline. I'm like, somebody put a picture or something so I can understand this, and somebody did. I'm not going to show it to you today because we don't have time, but I can give it to you later if you want. Herodias was Herod Philip's wife. So one of those four tetrarchs I was talking about, Herod the Great is the dad, Herod Antipas is one son, ten different wives, four of those wives had some sons and a daughter. We'll get to her in a minute. One of the sons was Herod Antipas. One of the sons later on had a son, Herod Agrippa, who we talked about in Paul's, uh, Paul's writings. You hear about him. But Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, Herod Archelaus, I think, and there was another guy that I can't remember the name. Herodias, who's now married in our story to Herod Antipas, she was married to Herod Philip. Half-brothers. Same dad, different mother. They were married. Well, what happened? How did, how did that change? Well, history tells us, not the passage here, history tells us that they both agreed, Herod Antipas and Herodias, to divorce their current spouse. And once the divorce went through, because it was against the law, um, then they could remarry each other, and they did that. I don't know if Herod Antipas really knew what he was getting into with that, but that's what they conspired. They conspired to have an affair, to divorce their spouses, and to get remarried. And Herodias was now Herod Antipas's wife. And Herodias wanted John the Baptist put in prison. Well, why? Well, it wasn't just prison. That was just as far as she could get her husband to do. She actually wanted him dead. But why? Why, 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 did, why is this? Well, we know um, when they got married... John the Baptist comes around, according to the Scriptures, and John the Baptist points out the sin they had committed. Here they are living in their house. This is a kind of a recreation of the palace atop that mountain. This is a computer, obviously, um, but the mountain is real. And uh, John the Baptist comes and he points out this sin that they had committed, adultery and incest. You say, incest? Well, yeah, that's what I didn't tell you. Herodias was actually his half-sister as well. So when you have ten different mothers in the picture, um, I guess you can just kind of pick whatever sister or brother you want, I guess. This, this family was messed up. John came around and he spoke truth. He said, that's wrong, that's wicked what you're doing. Not only is that, it's against the law. It's against God's law. And he spoke up. Now Herod Antipas, we don't really see a whole lot of reaction from him. I mean, you know, you can talk, hey, I'm in charge. You can't do anything about it. But Herodias didn't feel the same way. And she nursed this grudge. John the Baptist proclaimed everything, by the way, out loud. We know that, right? He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Everybody knew what was being said here. Herodias actually wanted John dead, but Herod would not allow her. So why wouldn't Herod just have John killed? Well, in verse number 20, he goes on. Chapter 6, verse 20. For Herod feared John. This is why he wouldn't allow him to be killed. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and a holy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Not only was he afraid of John, and the word feared here is actually phobeo. Okay, you notice that, our English word phobia. Really, it literally means to be terrified. He was scared of John. And we find in other areas, and as you study this man, the king was a very fearful man. Just because you have a big position doesn't mean... Uh, you have courage. Doesn't mean you're righteous or moral in any way, shape, or form. This man was probably guilt-ridden in other areas as well. Very fearful man. He feared John. Why? Well, the next part of the verse says, knowing that he was a just man and holy and observed him. You know, this is interesting. 
and I find this to be true as well, you see this other times, not just in history, but in real life, wicked men fear godliness. They do. For all of their brashness, for all of their pride and boasting, wicked men fear holiness and godliness. And I'm not talking about piety. I'm talking about someone who is truly unashamed, that, that, that righteous we were talking about in Proverbs, bold as a lion. They're afraid of that because it's something they don't have with all of their money, with all of their authority. They don't have that, and they can't. They can't buy it. Many times we fear what we don't understand. We see that Herod was curious as well. It says, and when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. We find that, that John was fascinating to Herod. Herod takes John, throws him in the dungeon somewhere in the middle. If you look at archaeology, there's a, there's a dungeon right in the center of this palace. And it's deep, very deep. It's about 20 feet down, straight down. But it says that he would spend time with John. And he enjoyed that time. It got to be something that he wanted to do. Herod was hearing something, no doubt, from John the Baptist that that he no doubt needed to hear, but it became something that he wanted to hear. But as far as we know, and we see this later on in life, it never had the effect to lead him to repentance. It never did. He heard the truth, no doubt. There wasn't, John didn't just tell him the truth in front of everybody and then be quiet the rest of the time. It's highly unlikely. He was hearing something from John that nobody else was willing to tell him. Herod also feared the people. I mean, let's not rule out politics. Politics influences everybody in authority. Matthew 14, 5, on the screen behind me, when he would have put him, John, to death, he feared the multitude. Because they counted him as a prophet. I mean, if I kill him, I mean, there's politics here at stake. I've already created enemies with my ex-wife's family who is bordering in Arabia. They're getting ready to launch and, and attack my kingdom. And, and now uh, these people think John is a prophet. They respect John. So if I, if I kill John, I know my wife wants me to, but if I kill John, I'm going to create a lot of enemies out here, and I'm, I need something going for me. Making that up, of course, the, the reaction... But he was afraid. He was afraid of the people. He did not want to go down that road. Verse 21. It says, And when a convenient day was come, that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee. When the daughter of the said Herodias came in, this was Salome, we know from history, she came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him. The king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. And he swear unto her, Whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee, unto the half of my kingdom. So in the expected and common lifestyle, uncommon lifestyle of a Roman-appointed ruler, a seat where there are no boundaries on what you can spend, there's no one around who can tell you what to do, this is a recipe for sin to destroy. And it did. He throws a birthday party for himself. Um, Hebrew history tells us that back then, actually, and I don't know how true this is, but historians say that uh, in those cultures, birthday parties were only given for men. Sorry, ladies, they were. And uh, matter of fact, believers in Christ believed that birthday parties were heathen things. They did not have them. Okay, But this is something heathen cultures did, and it became a quite immoral and drunken party. And this was no different here for Herod. He throws himself a birthday party. He invites all of the important people in the land to come and bask in his greatness. 
You, you see this in his life. He's constantly wanting affirmation for who he is. He fears the attitude of the people. He, he fears the opinions of others and his peers. And we'll see this in a minute. So he invites everybody who's anybody to come and enjoy um, his kingdom at a party. Women were not invited to these parties um, unless, unless you were invited for a purpose, which we'll see in a minute. These type of women were not godly women. These are type of women would be considered strange women in, the, in Proverbs or an adulterous woman or someone who is willing to use her body to captivate the will and attention of simple-minded men. Whether they are married or not did not matter. So these men ensue in the party, a party without the boundaries of truth to guide and protect. And they're easily lured by the pleasures of sin. Uh, by the way, it doesn't say it here, but we can pretty much infer that there was alcohol at the party as well. That was common in those days. So all of a sudden, we find this drunken, flesh-indulged man with other men, full authority to do and say whatever he wanted to, making a ridiculous wish come true for a girl that was pleasing him. Her name was, his, her name was Salome. She was Herodias' daughter. She was the daughter from um, Herodias' first husband, Philip, the one that she had divorced and now come over to Herod. She'd been invited to the party and she danced for all the men there. This was a very sensual dance. Text, the text tells us that this woman pleased Herod. By the way, this was his stepdaughter. So much so that she was able to ca- captivate the king to a point that he was willing to give her almost anything she wanted. He says, whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto the half of my kingdom. We see the last point. Verse 24, the wrong reaction to truth. Anger and bitterness. Where was, where was all this? What was this leading to? What was uh, coming? What was getting ready to happen? What a tragic, tragic story. In chapter 6, verse 24, it says, And she... So we'll say the damsel, Salome. And Salome went forth and said unto her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway immediately with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. (laughs) This really just makes no sense to me. But this is exactly what happens when people do not react correctly to truth. Things happen. You and I were made to be in line with truth because God is truth. Jesus is the the way, the truth, and the life. And when we reject truth, when we rebel against truth, it creates havoc in so many different areas. And as we begin to travel down that road, in this case as lost people, as unbelievers in Jesus Christ, go further and further and further and you will commit things and do things and feel things and say things you never imagined you would have done. So much so that she has actually, if you and I think about it, a pretty prime opportunity. Half of the kingdom? I mean, think of all that you could ask for. But she goes right to her mother, and all her mother can see is rage and anger. And why? Think about this. Think about why Herodias was angry. Why was he? Because somebody told her the truth. That was it. 
It wasn't like he falsely accused her. He told her the truth. This is what you did, and this is wrong. She was angry. Can we, can we all agree that ultimately this was a rejection of Jesus? I mean, what was the message and life that John the Baptist was living and preaching? The message of the Messiah. The message of the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message of holiness that God had given him direct uh, authority to proclaim. And it was being rejected. By the way, this is what it is. We just obey, folks. We take the truth and we obey. And God does all of this. The truth finds its own way. Whether man willingly accepts it, bends to it, avoids it, rebels against it, whatever it is, truth cannot be avoided forever. And truth will never be eradicated, ever. And it's what's happening here. They tried to get around it. It's not happening. We have the man, Herod, unwilling to repent, but still curious. I mean, this guy's telling me something nobody else is willing to tell me. We have the woman, she felt differently, angry at the confrontation. We have the man possibly on the road in the, in the future months coming to maybe uh, a right reaction, maybe repentance and faith. I, I don't understand what John is saying here, but he did something nobody else was willing to do. I'm going to go and hear more. And I mean, he's a captive audience now. I'm going to go visit him. I'm going to spend some time with this guy in the dungeon. Man, the more time I spend with him, the more I want to hear. But his lack of repentance... His lifestyle got the best of him and took him down a road he, he couldn't return from. He gives in to his fleshly desires and ultimately shuts down his chances to know Jesus. Verse 26, the request has now been made. I want John the Baptist's head on a charger and a platter. I mean, what a request. What a disgusting request, honestly. In verse 26, it says, And the king was exceeding sorry. What have I done? Yet for his oath's sake, and for their sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. Keep in mind, he could have rejected her. He did not. He had gone so far down this road that he felt he was trapped. He could not turn back. And that's what sin does. It takes us down a road that even though at any time God has given us free choice to stop, the pressure and the influence is so addicting that many times you will not return. And you dare not say, I will come to Christ when I'm ready. That's not really up to you. That is a lie. You are feeding yourself a lie. You may say as a child of God, you know, this is not that big of a deal. I'm just going just to get a little taste here. I'm just going to try something. And then I'll, I'll stop real quick. That's not always up to you. Because you become something, your thinking changes, your desires change, and you and I dare not take lightly the power of our flesh and the choices that erupt from that. This man's gone too far. You say, well, nobody can go too far. Well, that's true. Nobody is beyond God's saving. Nobody is beyond the saving power of Jesus Christ. But God never removes the aspect of our will. And do not think that you and I can be brash enough to think down the road, I'll want this. God's speaking to you now. Submit. Obey. But he says, he was, yeah, he was sorry, but for his own sake, because of what he told her, 
and for, the, and for the sakes of those that are around him and the fear of what everybody would think if he did not follow through on that, he would not reject her. It says, and immediately the king sent an executioner, commanded his head to be brought. He went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. And when his disciples, John's disciples, heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. From a human perspective, what a, what a sad ending. A godly man. His life ended. His legacy put as a spectacle for an angry and bitter woman at a drunken party. Even Jesus proclaimed this of John the Baptist in Matthew eleven eleven. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. His life had just ended. You can imagine, we, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think of John the Baptist as kind of this otherworldly, super spiritual guy that nothing ever affected. I mean, think of the footsteps coming to the door in his cell, and the door opens, and think of his just natural human emotion. Maybe I'm going to be released. I mean, we've been meeting. We've been talking. Things have been going well. But there stands the executioner and immediately cuts off his head and takes that grisly thing up to this debauched banquet. People so drunk, so uh, entrenched in their lust, in their flesh, that they thought that was good. They accepted that head coming up. We don't read of anybody even distastefully rejecting it or thinking anything of it. The king said it, even though he didn't want to. And he did. In Luke uh, 9, verse 9, I think I have that behind me too, it says, And Herod said, John have I beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? And he, he desired to see him. Boy, you know what Herod was doing right here, these conversations up until this point that Herod had been having with John had such an effect on him that after this beheading, and Herod is now back at the beginning of our story, the parallel passage in Luke 9, he thinks of this man, and yes, he has an irrational opinion of who this is. This has got to be John risen from the dead. I don't know how else to explain this. He is, this is just like John. I mean, he resent, John resembled Jesus so much that when Jesus came on the scene and Herod heard the message that was being proclaimed by the apostles, he thought it was John and his guilt made him think something that was totally irrational. It's John's ghost. He's back from the dead. He's, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm afraid. But not so afraid. It says, and he desired to see him. He wanted. I have to believe that he wanted to hear a little more. He, he thought in his heart, maybe it's not too late. Maybe John is risen from the grave. You know, we find out later that um, Jesus did not even go the rest of his earthly ministry. It's a little over a year that we have left. Did not even go in any of Herod's um, regions the rest of his earthly ministry. So Herod's desire was never fulfilled until the very end. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 23, if you would. It's the last passage we'll turn to. I'd just like you to see this. I thought this was very eye-opening. And it kind of puts the last nail in the coffin. And I hope if this does anything for us, it stamps on our hearts that the decision to come to Christ 
is ultimately not up to us. It's not. Oh yeah, you have to obey and bow your will, but you're not guaranteed that God will ever speak to you again because you can't come to Him if He doesn't. We, we, this modern Christianity thing where we're so brash and thinking that we can just do this whenever we want, it's not biblical, number one, but it's proud. You know what God says about the proud? God resists the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. It, it doesn't even make sense if you think about it. But this is our flesh. It's all about us. It's rooted in us. And Herod desired to see him. I think in one sense maybe he was hoping. He was hoping And he hears this name, Jesus, and uh, he's thinking this is John the Baptist, but he wants to see him. And when when Jesus finally stands before Herod, you say, Jesus comes? No. Now Jesus is in Pilate's judgment hall. Listen to this in Luke chapter 23. Pilate hears that Jesus is from Galilee. Fast forward to the, the day before he's crucified. He hears that Jesus is from Galilee, Luke 23, 6 and wants to pawn off the death of an innocent man. Remember he says, I I have no part in this. This is an innocent man. But then he realizes, wait a minute, you said you're a Galilean? Uh, Wait a minute, are you part of, you know, you're you're a resident of Galilee? You're a native of Galilee? And he thinks, this is Herod's jurisdiction. This is a great way to get this off my plate, because I don't like what's going on here. Whose jurisdiction is Galilee? Herod Antipas. Luke 23. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him, Jesus, to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at that time. And listen, and when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season. Jesus was finally here. The man that he thought was John the Baptist raised from the dead. He desired to see him for a long season, verse number 8, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. He still doesn't get it, but he, he cannot get off his conscience and mind that this is John. And if he's not John, he is so similar to John. And I want more. There's something true here. I want to hear this. Verse 9, Then he, Herod, questioned with him Jesus in many words, but he, Jesus, answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod, with his men of war, set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. Herod's last chance to hear the truth was back with John. He tried to get it back. I I want to see him. He's he's from the dead. I, I, I desire to see him. He was afraid, but at the same time, I remember those conversations. I remember what John told me. He's the only one willing to tell me the truth. Maybe, just maybe. But even when Jesus was standing in front of him, Jesus refused to speak to him. And so it says, And Herod with his men at war set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. He just went back to his same fleshly heathen ways. As we consider these things, would you bow your head and close your eyes? And we, we draw the attention that Herod here had several chances to receive the truth. And Herod should have repented long ago, but he didn't. He didn't. Influenced by fear, pride, lust, 
uh, a wicked spouse. He never turned to Jesus. But instead, he joined the crowd that would kill the prince of life. Where are we at this morning? You know, sometimes we can think of, of guilt as only a negative thing. It only does us harm. If you are laying under a load of guilt this morning, I would ask you to be honest with yourself why that may be. It's an indicator. It may be that God is speaking to you. And you need to come to Him, and you have not yet. You need to be saved this morning. I'm going to invite you to do that in a few minutes. I'm going to invite you as we stand up just to remove yourself from your row and head to the back of the auditorium. We'll have someone show you from the Bible how you can be saved. How Jesus, who is willing to forgive, will do so for you. You say, well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm like Herod and it's, it's too late. If God's speaking to you right now, it's not. If you're here, you came searching, you're considering these things, it's not. And I encourage you, it may not be the case next week or next year. You do not know what decisions will lead you down whatever road it is to where you will not be willing to repent. Will you obey today? Will you obey the gospel and come to Christ? Even as we're seated, you're welcome to stand and head right to the back. We'll have uh, Miss Debbie and Brother Tommy meet you back there, one or the other. For the rest of us, maybe you are a child of God and, and you deal with guilt. Could be a myriad of different reasons. Could be because uh, you are struggling. You're struggling with sin. You're struggling with a sin that you know you should have the victory over. And you keep giving in. Can I, can I say that God offers the victory? Sometimes we just need to be honest about it. We always need to confess it. But this is the important thing of being around the body of Christ. Being around other brothers and sisters who can join arms with you, can pray for you, can keep you accountable. But they can if they don't know what's going on. There's victory in Christ and in the family of God, the fellowship of believers that God has assembled, specifically here this morning, because that's where you are. Maybe you're laden with guilt, and quite honestly, you shouldn't be laden with guilt. You've accepted some lies. Maybe you were abused. Maybe you were just a victim of someone who's just domineering, has just told you you're no good for your whole life, and you've accepted that. Your conscience has been educated in the wrong way. Maybe you just need to make, uh, to affirm some decisions in your life. Lord, I, I need your truth. I need right thinking. Maybe you need to confess that even though 